Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analysts Jason Moser and Maria Gallagher. Good to see you both. Nice to hey, see hey. you. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Elliot Brown from the Wall Street Journal is our guest. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the red-hot restaurant industry. Domino's Pizza and Chipotle both hitting new all-time highs this week after strong second quarter results. In Domino's case, Maria, it wasn't just that profits and revenue beat Wall Street's expectations. They continue to increase their same-store sales, both here in the U.S and around the world. Yeah, I think you've said it best, Chris, which is to never bet against pizza. So, U.S. same-store <laughs> sales growth was 3.5%. International same-store sales growth was about 14%. It's the 110th consecutive quarter of international same-store sales growth and 41st consecutive quarter of U.S. same-store sales growth. What you see as well is that in the U.S., there was an increase in items per order. Internationally, a lot of growth was due to reopening. So, hopefully, farther down the line, that translates to that higher order. Um, and the thing with Domino's is you know what you're getting when you get Domino's, and you get it quickly. So their car side delivery consistently averages below two minutes from out the door to the customer, or you have div- delivery, and then you have autonomous delivery being tested out in Houston. So it's a good uh, it's a good place to get pizza and pizza that is delivered fast, and pizza is always a good delivery food. So it's just another uh, really good quarter for Domino's. Well, and you and I were talking about this earlier in the week. There, there are always going to be people who will look down their nose at Domino's. But as you said, part of the success of this business is the reliability, both in terms of the product and the product getting to your home. Yeah, and it's pretty interesting because their growth in rural areas outperformed in urban areas. And so it's interesting to see, you know, that reliability even when you're going maybe a little bit farther. Whereas in urban areas like I'm in in New York, I can walk to a Domino's in one block. But when you get that delivery and it's probably a little bit farther away, it's that consistency and that reliability that I think continues to drive it. With Chipotle, Jason, the digital sales have been strong for a while, but it seems like part of the story with this latest quarter is the return of dine-in customers. I think that's definitely a fair um, assessment. I mean, one could look at these results and say they are the product of a very challenging quarter from a year ago, and maybe that investors should curb their enthusiasm. I think that's a mistake. I think this is a company that's poised to keep on winning. And Chris, imagine what happens if they actually mention breakfast in an <laughs> earnings call for once, which they didn't do this quarter, by the way, uh, but but to those numbers into the digital sales uh, that you were calling out there, digital sales grew ten and a half percent from a year ago, represented forty eight and a half percent of sales for this quarter. But if you look back just a quarter ago, it was around half, so it was a little bit more a quarter ago. But a year ago, digital sales were greater than sixty percent. So we're seeing that moderate a little bit, and that speaks to your point about people actually uh, being willing to either go back into the restaurant or pick up from the restaurant. Uh, but but all in all, I mean, comps up thirty one point two percent, restaurant level operating margin up. 20, up to 24.5%. That was double uh, from a year ago. And, and to me, this really is all about the opportunity because they're back to their peak $2.5 million annual average unit volume. Now they're gunning for $3 million. So that's $3 million on average per store per year that they're aiming for. Now, 
For a company that is still running around 2,800 stores or so, they see an opportunity for 6,000 stores in total. So, you know, you put the math together there, you're talking about potentially $18 billion in revenue based on those numbers in a company that's doing currently about $7 billion in revenue today. So, I certainly understand the optimism behind the stock. Yes, it's richly valued, but it's high quality, it's a proven operator with a lot of market opportunity yet to capture. Just real quick, and I don't want you to get my hopes up here, but is breakfast a catalyst for Chipotle? Like, is that something they're considering? Because from an investing standpoint, we saw what all-day breakfast did for McDonald's shareholders a few years ago. It is definitely something they continue to test, and it's something that I think eventually will roll out. And it's just it it represents incremental opportunity. If you can open your stores earlier in the day and get those additional sales, it really should do nothing but really boost that top line. Starbucks reports their earnings next week. That stock also hit a new all-time high this week. And you think back a year ago, Maria, every restaurant chain was struggling. A few months ago, hiring was a huge challenge for most, if not all of them. But you look at how Chipotle, Domino's, and Starbucks are all performing, and it seems like these three are starting to separate themselves and show everyone else this is what it takes to succeed, both in terms of hiring, how we treat our employees, and how we deal with our customers. Yeah, and I think it's um, it's a combination of all of those things, and it's food that's good for delivery. I think delivery is going to be continued. How a lot of people, if you're bored of cooking and maybe you're not quite sure that you want to go back to restaurants yet, these are good places to get delivery, or in Starbucks' case, to just go in and out really fast. Um, Chipotle as well, just go in and out. Even if you're dining in, you might dine outside. So I think it's just interesting to see how consumer habits will shift in terms of how much loyalty they have to these to these companies. Well, and Jason, a point you've made before, and I know Starbucks has lagged the other two, but the mobile app that. Domino's and Chipotle have developed really is key to their success. I yeah, I mean there are just I don't understand how any business out there today can't be focused on a mobile presence. This is just where the consumers are and and that is not going to change. And so the companies like Chipotle, Starbucks, um, I mean Domino's, Papa John's, they had the wherewithal to to make these big investments and to take this chance so early into the game and, and it's really starting to pay off. Snap's second quarter included an adjusted profit that apparently no one was expecting. <laughs> Daily active users are up, revenue per user is up, and shares of Snap up more than 20% on Friday, Maria. Yeah, so when you think about social media in general, I think the real question is how much time can people waste on these apps every single day? <laughs> uh, and Snap has continually proven that it's a lot of time. So uh, they reached nearly 300 million daily active users. Daily time spent on the app per user grew over 60% last quarter. Revenue was up 116%. Revenue's up over 100% in North America, 94% in Europe, 86% in the rest of the world. So people are spending a lot of time on the apps. It's an integrated part of their daily habits. And if you have those top 5, 10, you have Snap, you have Twitter, you have TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram, people will rotate through all of them throughout their days. Uh, on average, the, a user of social media spends over two and a half hours every day on these apps, and you kind of filter between all of them. And so, I think that Snap uh, specifically continues to prove just a lot of people spend a lot of their time, and that leads to a lot of advertising dollars and spending on, on these platforms. It is interesting to see how this business has grown because when they were going public, 
a lot of the questions were around the monetization. But as you said, their ability to not just help people waste time, but also to satisfy advertisers has been so key to their growth. Yeah, I am a person, I always say I'm an advertiser's dream. I get any targeted ad, <laughs> there's a 90% chance I want it and I buy it. Um, and so you see in all of these social medias, they, they understand your spending habits better than you do a lot of times. And so I don't mind it when I go. I know that there's a lot of concerns, but I like scrolling through the apps and seeing targeted ads for stuff because a lot of times it is stuff I want. It's not um, kind of something random. It's targeted to you, which I think is useful. Shares of Netflix down a bit this week after a less than amazing second quarter. Profits were lower than expected, but they added one and a half million global subscribers, which puts them somewhere in the neighborhood of 210 million paid subs, Jason. Yeah, I think this was a lot more of what you would expect. Um, I think from a company that continues to make just really big investments in content and, and to quantify that, streaming obligations now stand at just under $22 billion uh, versus just over $19 billion at the end of 2020. So uh, that's that's sort of the fuel that keeps this engine running. No surprise there. Uh, but, but you said it global paid subscribers exceeded the guidance they set out last quarter. That's good to see. Always looking for management to exceed their targets. Uh, not so worried about Wall Street targets. Uh, they did acknowledge recent lumpiness for obvious reasons. Uh, Asia Pacific, believe it or not, represented the crux of the growth there in global subscribers. And average revenue per membership was up 4%, excluding currency effects. Um, I, I think really. Probably the biggest story for the quarter for for Netflix is this this investment that they're making in gaming. Uh, remember, they just recently hired Mike Verdu to serve as Netflix's vice president of game development, and ultimately they view gaming as another content category, uh, something something akin to their expansion into original uh, content, and, and it's going to be something that's included in members' uh, subscriptions at no additional cost. It's going to give them the opportunity to test and learn there, and and who knows if it gains traction then they can do more with it. But I think this is all really uh, pointing towards Netflix's ultimate aspirations of just becoming that modern-day, 21st-century multimedia company. Right? It's not going to be just video streaming. They, they really do have bigger aspirations. Coming up, a reminder that comfortable footwear can be rewarding for your portfolio, as well as your feet. Details after the break, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Maria Gallagher and Jason Moser. You can catch Motley Fool Money every week on your favorite podcast platform and on radio stations across America, including our newest affiliate, WHTC in Holland, Michigan. Shout Yay. out, Shout Welcome out to, to the Michigan. family. Welcome, indeed. Shares of Crocs up nearly 20% this week after the footwear company put up record revenue of $640 million in the second quarter. Maria, Andrew Rees took over as CEO four years ago. Crocs, they were at $7 a share, and today it's at 130 Crocs is a, is a shoe that I judge, but is a stock that I'm interested in. Uh, people started <laughs> buying these in the pandemic, um, and they have no interest in stopping. They appeal to such a wide audience. I mean, I was thinking about it. How many other brands can have partnerships with Balenciaga, Justin Bieber, Drew Barrymore, and Bad Bunny? So it leads to consistent beats on revenue, like you said, with the past year revenue or past quarter revenue of 641 million, which translates to 29.1 million shoes sold. This was their 17th quarter of double-digit e-commerce growth, and it raised its guidance for uh, this full year. So, 
it's really an interesting stock, even if I don't, I don't think I'll ever buy the shoes. <laughs> the digital sales is is pretty interesting to see because there are companies in the apparel space that really struggle with that, and I think it's one more testament to Reese and his team that they've been able to do that with their digital sales. Yeah, and I mean their sales were up 20, their digital sales were up twenty five percent. They are about thirty six percent of their second quarter sales, so they're a good portion of their sales are now through digital channels. And I think uh, the good thing is with Crocs, I think you're pretty sure you know what size you are when you see them. There's not a lot of versatility in what you're getting. Earlier this week, Zoom Video announced it is buying Five9, a cloud-based call center operator, for $14.7 billion in stock. Shares of Zoom Video down a little bit this week. Jason, are there people on Wall Street who think they pay too much, or, <laughs> or do they just think this isn't a good acquisition because of Five9's business? Well, no, I, th- I think it's just always the burden of proof is on the acquirer to really show that it makes sense. Um, and, and honestly, I, I look at this, the first thing I thought of when I read about this deal on Zoom's uh, investor relations website was one word it was Salesforce. And so, I mean, I think it's fair to view Zoom on the same playing field as Salesforce with this deal. It certainly shows management's grander aspirations. And when you look at what Five9 does, right, they run virtual call centers, they essentially open up the lines of communications uh, in, in Today's multi-channel world. So, I mean, customer service agents can respond to inquiries across all platforms. Um, and, and really, it is, I think, ultimately about the market opportunity. Zoom definitely needs to figure out how to build out an arsenal of capability beyond its core company. It's done uh, competency. It's done very well thus far, but they need to leverage that expertise in communications. And I think this is one uh, strong way to do it, frankly. I mean, if you look at the market opportunity, Zoom sees that total addressable market today at around $86 billion. But if you look at the total addressable market in this space by Salesforce's judgment, and Salesforce is a bigger business, they do more things, but now, all of a sudden, you're talking Talking about a $175 billion market opportunity. So there, there are a lot of dollars out there. Even just a little success here can result in some big, big numbers for Zoom. Um, in regard to the deal, it's all stock. They're taking advantage of a strong valuation. It'll dilute Zoom's current share account by around 12.5%. But 5.9, strong business, 58, 60% gross margin. This prices the deal at around 30 times sales. That's pretty much in line with the way a lot of these companies are being valued today. Shares of Johnson & Johnson up a bit this week after second quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. J&J also raised guidance for the full fiscal year. Maria, this is one of those quarters where I think if you're a shareholder, there is a lot to like. Yeah, I think Johnson & Johnson is a company that, even if you don't realize it, it just touches your life almost every day. It had global sales of $23.3 billion, and that breaks down to three segments. The first is worldwide consumer health sales. That was up about 13.3%. That's brands we know and use, like Aveeno, Neutrogena, Motrin, Zyrtec, Band-Aid. Then you have pharmaceutical sales, which are up 17.2%, and that's their largest segment. That's selling medications from problems like plaque psoriasis to immune um, immune inflammatory diseases, prostate cancer, and then you have worldwide medical device sales, which that section was up over 60% with everything from surgical vision to hips and spine devices. So, it's just such a behemoth and there are so many moving parts to it. And in this quarter, at least, all of these parts seem to be moving well and moving in the right direction. 
Is it safe to assume that uh, Johnson & Johnson is one of the companies that benefits from an increase in elective surgery? Because that's something we've, you know, for all of the obvious reasons, we've seen a big reduction in that over the last 15 months. Yeah. When you look at their medical device uh, platform, you see so many things, a lot of um, eye surgeries, which I think is one of those elective surgeries. So I think that, yeah, I think that that will help. Shares of Boston Beer Company falling more than 20% on Friday after second quarter profits and revenue came in much lower than expected. The company said sales of their hard seltzer brand, Truly, were weaker than they had projected. Jason, the stock's down more than 20% in a single day. How bad were the hard seltzer numbers? <laughs> well, Chris, you live by the seltzer, you die by the seltzer, my friend. <laughs> I mean, I am, I am unfortunately not surprised to see the market's reaction based on these numbers. Uh, I, I am a little surprised, though, to see these numbers. I mean, that's a pretty steep drop-off in seltzer demand, and we know that their business, uh, their beer business, has been having some problems for a while now. Um, and so, ultimately, what this boiled down to was in 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 they they thought there was just going to be greater demand for seltzer than than materialized uh, they had really uh, devoted a lot of their production to seltzer less so to their other offerings like twisted tea and whatnot and and, and uh, you know thanks to competition thanks to the economy opening back up people getting out of their house less pantry stuffing uh, we just saw lower numbers in in the demand for their seltzer product uh, depletions of 24 percent were down from 48% just a quarter ago. Uh, and, and they made some significant revisions to guidance as well. And when I say significant, I mean they took full year earnings per share uh, from a range of $22 to $26. They reduced that to $18 to $22. And they reduced that shipments and depletions number from 40 to 50% to 25 to 40%. You put that all together now with this sell off today, the stock is trading at somewhere around 35 times full year estimates. That actually Actually, seems pretty normal for what is a, a high-quality business with some powerful brands. I think there was just a lot of enthusiasm baked into that stock price based on that seltzer uh, performance that they had seen over the past year. And at some point, you have to be able to deliver those numbers. If you don't, the market's going to going to correct the stock price based on those new expectations. And I, I think that's just what we're seeing here today. Is there an opportunity for them this fall with uh, hopefully more people returning to stadiums for football games, or is that is that not anything they're projecting? Uh, I mean, I think there's plenty of opportunity as the economy continues to open back up. They have said the on-premise sites. I mean, you're talking about people going back to restaurants, games, and whatnot. That absolutely is opportunity. But it has the competition in the space has just heated up so much. I think that's going to make a big difference. Jason Moser, Maria Gallagher, we'll see you later in the show. But up next, Elliot Brown from the Wall Street Journal on the incredible rise and staggering fall of WeWork. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. I like beer. It makes me a jolly good fellow. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. In 2019, in the span of just a few weeks, WeWork went from being the most valuable startup company in America to losing more than 80% of its value. How it all started and how it all came crashing down is brilliantly captured in the brand new book, The Cult of We, WeWork, Adam Newman, and the Great Startup. Elliot Brown, a Wall Street Journal reporter and co-author of the book, joins me now from New York. Elliot, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. 
Let me start at uh, the beginning for you, which was 2013. You're covering real estate. You meet Adam Newman for the first time. What was your impression of him? Uh, I I was interested in WeWork because they were this this expanding office space company and, and doing co working, and that was a, a trend I was interested in, and was immediately just sort of captured by how much energy this guy had, and and this sort of. Um, you know, he was not the boring suit of a landlord that I was used to. And he just starts name dropping like Ashton Kutcher and Rahm Emanuel and shows me a video of their summer camp with beer and him like on a boat in the lake. And, um, it's like, wow, this is fun. Uh, and then the, the sort of other main thing that stood out, or there were a couple, but he, one was very insistent that like, well, you're a real estate reporter we aren't a real estate company. So why are, I don't think you should be the one to write about us. Uh, and so that, that's one thing. And then sort of related, he, he just had this way of talking about the future that at the time I was like, uh, you know, he was describing how, when they open up in Portland in nine months, they w- will be full within two weeks. And he just say it with extreme confidence. And my thought was like, wow, that's amazing. Uh, that's a good business. And then afterward, I was like, wait, how would he know that? Like, you can't know what's going to happen in nine months. Uh, but, but in the moment I, I was really there. So I uh, know he's very friendly and gracious and, and, and you're really like, he was just so warm and that you can really see why people give him money. One of the things I was thinking about as I was reading the book that, uh, you and your colleague Maureen Farrell wrote was something that behavioral economist, Dan Ariely has said, which is how, Story is more important than data. Story has emotion, but data does not. And Adam Newman was really good at telling a pretty compelling story, both to his employees and investors, wasn't he? Yeah. And actually, there, there's a moment, we have an anecdote in the book, where he says the quiet part out loud. He says almost exactly what you just said. Uh, and he's in a meeting with the CEO of Compass, uh, a real estate company. And he, Adam was just obsessed with valuation. And he tells the CEO of Compass, you know, why do you think your, your revenue multiple is worse than mine? Uh, like, why are you valued so much less compared to me based on your revenue? Uh, and he has them all go around the room and they each say something, everyone in the office. And then he just says, you're all wrong. It's because of my story. Uh, and he was right. Like, I mean, that is the reason that, that WeWork was valued essentially like 20 times higher than a comparable real estate company doing the same thing. And there is, you know, not to leap to Adam Newman's defense, but there is a, a, a pretty rich history particularly in Silicon Valley among startups, the whole idea of fake it till you make it. So, you know, early on, it doesn't seem like there were necessarily a ton of red flags. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's probably why they got one of the premier venture capital firms to invest in them, Benchmark, early on. And, and actually, if you go back, WeWork did have, WeWork's now known for just having these completely outsized losses in the billions, but they actually had a profitable year in 2012 by their own counting. And like that was the one of the things that attracted Benchmark. They're like, wow, this not only does this guy have a story um, and is just like this outsized personality that tends to be the type of entrepreneurs we invest in, but they also have a business that makes a profit. We don't see that very often. Uh, and you know, the thing that everyone was forgetting is that most normal businesses raise like have profits. That's that's what a business is. Uh, it, the, the issue was, you know, it's not a WeWork was never something designed for venture capital, uh, where you sort of fund investment upfront in building software and then uh, you know reap the rewards later once it grows to a certain scale. 
I want to come back to the venture capital in a second, but first, uh, one of the great things about this book is there are a lot of anecdotes about uh, excess, uh, both in terms of behavior, but also in terms of how money is spent. What was the first indication that you had that something amiss was happening, either in the business of WeWork or in the corporate culture? So the, the two separate answers. So the business was uh, that one was pretty clear to me. Where I was covering as a real estate reporter, and then I found out their valuation. I was like, why is it worth one point five billion dollars? Like I know what a building is worth, and they don't even own their space. And and, and the, the the amount of space that they lease should bring them nowhere close to one and a half billion dollars. Uh, so and then when you combine that with how they insisted that they were a tech company. And they weren't. Um, that that's where sort of the light bulb went off. I was like, oh, I get it now. That's why they say they're not a real estate company because they need to sort of have this story to get evaluation. And then on the cultural side, it was later, like after I was learning more and sort of digging in because I was really interested in in what this weird company that was saying it wasn't a real estate company was. Uh, I, I found, you know, just like started to come on these anecdotes of these stories of just all of the drinking and and excess, where you know they would just have past tequila shots out to the entire staff and like, cause that's the sort of cultiness of it where Adam likes tequila and therefore the entire company drinks tequila. Um, and, uh, you know, then, then I started to learn that like, they're this tiny series B company, uh, like meaning they just raised their second round of venture capital. And Adam was only flying private basically. Uh, and like private planes are extremely expensive. Like a round trip ticket to Tokyo is like $250,000 in the plane that Adam would fly. Like that's, that's more than a first class ticket. So um, like that was another pretty quick sign that it's like, what is what's going on at this really tiny kind of office space subleasing company that I, I'd like to cover. So one of the things that comes up repeatedly in the book is the idea of oversight, because as investors, we like to think that any business that we're investing in has adults in the room and has some measure of oversight, whether it's the board of directors or, or whatever. You mentioned benchmark. They've got, you know, WeWork has Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, Fidelity, T. Rowe Price. You know, the, some of the gold standard names that you would want to be involved with. And then SoftBank comes along, and I, I I'm, would love your thoughts on the relationship between Adam Newman and Masayoshi San, because part of me thinks, well, it could have been anyone with deep pockets to fund this company, but you know, San comes along, and tells him. You're not being crazy enough, which is probably not the advice that Adam Newman needed to hear. <laughs> so, so when that happened, the staffers who you know were around Adam a bunch would, and he'd meet with Masa, and then he'd come back from these meetings where where Masa would tell him to be crazier, and they would just like put their their hands in their palms because um, you know it's like Adam by his own telling is like crazy already, uh, and and then he'd be told you aren't thinking big enough, and they'd be like. Jesus, we just bought a wave pool company. Like, what are we going to do next? Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that oversight was really lacking before SoftBank. I mean, you know, to, to be clear, they they did buy forty two percent of a wave pool company before SoftBank came along. They were riding private all the time. They just didn't own a jet yet. 
Uh, and you know, then after SoftBank came in with all this money, they started to do really crazy things where it's just like, let's start our own elementary school and, uh, you know, let's, um, start, you know, Adam's mind went to, to a megalomania level where he's like, I, I could be president of the world and I can live forever. Um, and, uh, you know, I need to have eight homes. Um, so, uh, I think SoftBank was a real accelerant and yeah, I mean, it was, the type of thing where I sort of initially came into this thinking, well, people who have billions of dollars are, are like, there's, it's not going to be as absurd as just like throwing money around. Like there's going to be more thought that goes into that. But I guess one of the main lessons is kind of at all levels, uh, it, it was so much more reckless than I thought the financial system was. I mean, it was almost always the case that you had or, you know, at a lot of these levels you had at, at the mutual funds at SoftBank and, and the private equity fund, you had the principals, you know, the, the, the leaders of these firms in a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Adam or, you know, three on three and in the room with him. And they can, within minutes are convinced to give an investment. And then they're like, okay, but we'll do due diligence. But then the analysts would come back at their firms and be like, this is a real estate company and it's valued at like 20 times a real estate company. This is not a good investment. And they'd be like, yeah, we're going to do it. Um, <laughs> so it, it was, uh, the, the process was there to look at it, but the, the decision had already essentially been made, which is just, yeah, like the, the, the recklessness was, was a, a quick decision. And then the, um, not reckless part of it was, it was kind of ignored. What do you chalk that up to? The idea that they do the due diligence, the analysts come back, say, no, this is a bad investment. Eh, we're going to do it anyway. Is it that there's so much money to go around in terms of venture capital? Is it fear of missing out? What is it? Yes. Yes and yes. Um, I, and I, I, I think broadly, what I learned, um, and, and, you know, this is not new to anyone who studied the history of these things is it bubbles when frenzies really just warp minds. And so they, they make it. So if you're an investor, it's a lot harder to have critical thinking kind of in the same way that like when a stock goes up 10 X, then suddenly there's more people that are, are thinking, Oh, well, it goes up from here. Uh, when, uh, like that, that's, a, you know, theoretically the, the worst thing you should be thinking after a stock sort of irrationally just jumped up 10 X, um, cause it's a lot more overvalued than it was, um, presumably. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that what happens in a bubble is, is people don't think critically and there might be all these negative reasons, but there's just one positive reason. And they, they, they zoom in on the positive and ignore the negative. Uh, and then, yeah, in terms of the FOMO, it just, like these guys needed to spend money. So the, the example with Masa was sort of what we, in, in SoftBank, what we learned um, is he got SoftBank got its check of, of $45 billion from the Saudis or committed uh, in like November of 2016 in December of 2016 um, Masayoshi Son meets Adam and in 12 minutes on a high, like a pit stop on the way to Trump tower to meet the president elect decides to give him $4 billion. And so, you know, commits to the, the second largest venture capital investment in the U S uh, ever. And, um, like, you know, that, that's just, uh, I, I, I it, there has to be a relationship there between like, I just raised a hundred billion dollar fund. I need to spend it. I need to show my investors that I can get into big companies. Uber and Airbnb probably don't want my money. Um, or certainly not yet. So, uh, like here's this guy, he can absorb $4 billion. Um, and he seems to have all the qualities that I like in terms of just sort of like hard charging visionary founder who, who speaks really fast. Let's cut to August of 2019. 
WeWork's getting ready to go public. They file their S1, and then people actually read it, which is when the dam breaks. And this is something you point out in the book. When companies go public, there can be businesses that have their skeptics, but there will always be defenders. There's always someone willing to make the bull case for the company. WeWork's S1 filing comes out, and it is just blood in the water. I mean, Scott Galloway, Jim Cramer on CNBC, Matt Levine at Bloomberg, and God knows how many people on Twitter are going through it and just ripping this apart because they can't believe what they're reading. Yes, uh, that that was. It's funny. Like I was on vacation. Like I'd been, you know, WeWork was my baby, and I'd been covering it forever and doing all these stories that, that you know had not been sticking. Where I'd be like, it's it kind of looks like a real estate company and is valued like a software company. Uh, but then I'm on vacation, and then like it, out of reception, they come back with to all these alerts. Like suddenly the world gets it. Um, so this is the sort of emperor's new clothes moment, or the the parade moment in the emperor's new clothes, where people suddenly start saying like, no, he's not wearing clothes. Like it's not a tech company because. I think just it was too absurd there. It was just like, you know, he restructured this didn't even get pressed because it was it was so esoteric. But like he restructured the entire corporate structure of the company to give himself better tax treatment on its stock options. Uh, he uh, and he had a, a, a compensation package that would give him like another seven percent of the company or something like that. If he hit certain targets, uh, these were things that didn't even get mentioned because there was so much. Uh, he's leasing properties to himself uh, or le- leasing properties to the company and get the pay- companies paying him millions. Um, so yeah, it was just like this endless parade of things you can write about. And, uh, then, you know, people rightfully also like have been starting to question why companies are, it just become routine to lose $2 billion a year before uh, going public. Like that, that, that's not like a normal thing in, in, um, you know, startup history. We were talking during the break, uh, look, this is two years ago. And I, I know a lot of people have short memories, but, uh, it is worth pointing out. I mean, I, I don't recall ever seeing anything like this before in real time when it was happening. The idea that they're going to go public at this huge valuation, and in the span of a few weeks, it's okay, we're going to cut our valuation in half. All right, we're going to cut it even further. And then investment bankers are basically saying, en masse, we can't get anyone to buy this, and the IPO has to be shelved. Uh, these same investment bankers who, you know, one of them told him it would be worth $96 billion a, a few months earlier. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was just so extraordinary of a moment in in business, and and you know the, the market sort of came back with with a real fire afterward eventually. But but at the time it was, and for a brief while it was like it, it really iced over Silicon Valley startups. I mean, people had a ton of trouble raising money. Suddenly, all these um, companies that had been funded sort of with the same thesis of just like light money on fire to try to grow revenue. Uh, like they were suddenly told, like, no, that this this no longer works. This this you know predominant thesis of the era is is wrong, and so they suddenly had to just start cutting. And so like all of these SoftBank companies were laying off you know huge chunks of their staff, um, and it was it seemed like it was going to be the end of the era or the punctuation on the era of startup insanity or like unicorn insanity. Um, but uh, yeah, then um, then the pandemic happened and and things changed. <laughs> Well, just like Theranos happened, and we thought, well, we'll never have that type of thing happen again, and and along comes Adam Newman. Yeah, though I, I think one of the funny differences between Theranos and WeWork is, you know, Theranos was about a charismatic entrepreneur 
lying to convince unsophisticated investors, you know, like former secretaries of state uh, to to back the company, um, whereas Adam was able to use truth, um, but contorting it uh, to convince sophisticated investors to see something that as as real that wasn't. So he taught sophisticated investors to, you know, look at uh, a real estate company and see a disruptive startup. The book is The Cult of We. We work Adam Newman and the great startup. It is already a bestseller on Amazon. And by this time next week, I'm pretty sure it's going to be on other bestsellers. Well. <laughs> I, I, I should give you the caveat. It's a micro category on Amazon. So we still need everyone's help. So please buy our book. <laughs> it's a fascinating read. Elliot, congrats to you and Maureen Farrell. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's nice work if you can get it and you can get it. Won't you tell me how Up next, Maria Gallagher and Jason Moser return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Don't talk back. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Maria Gallagher and Jason Moser. Radar stocks. Let's get to them quick. Rick Engdahl is our man behind the glass this week. He's going to hit you with a question. Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at? Yeah, keeping an eye on PayPal, ticker PYPL. This war on cash staple has hit another 52-week high this week, Chris. Earnings coming out next Wednesday. They're pushing $1 trillion annually through their networks now. And I want to hear how many times they mention the word super app on their conference call on Wednesday. So, PayPal. Stock's having a great year to date, up 30%, doubling the market. I expect more. Rick, question about PayPal? Yeah, you know, whenever I have to use PayPal, I feel like I'm in a little time machine back to 1998. Just like the user interface that I come up against. <laughs> is, is there anybody under 45 still signing up for PayPal, Jason? No, I think they're all signing up for Venmo. <laughs> Maria Gallagher, what are you looking at? Uh, so I'm looking at Squarespace, ticker symbol SQSP. They went public in May of this year, and together, Wix and Squarespace power 55% of websites that are built with a website builder. So I follow Wix a little bit, and I think it's important to kind of understand the differences between Squarespace and Wix and compare and contrast the two. It's done pretty well since it um, IPO'd or it went, did direct listing in May. So I'm interested in it. Rick, question about Squarespace? I am actually a Squarespace customer. I have a couple of websites that I haven't updated in a couple of years, but I'm still paying for them. And I'm wondering how many more customers like me are out there. How much do they depend on dormant sites? Interesting. It's uh, like gyms. How many people are paying for memberships even though they never step foot into a gym? That's something I'll look out for. Rick Engdahl, you got one of those two stocks you want to add to your watch list? To be honest, they're, I, I own shares of both of them already, so you both win. <laughs> All right. Yay, I'll Good take enough. it. <laughs> Maria Gallagher, Jason Moser, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.